0: Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 13, Grudge Match and Affairs in Alexandria and Africa. Last week, Caesar invaded Italy and began his civil war with Pompey Magnus and the Optimates. Caesar had early successes in driving them out of Italy and defeating Pompeian forces in Spain, but when Caesar moved his forces east... Pompey handed Caesar defeat at Dyrrachium, forcing Caesar to withdraw. Caesar lost many men in the battle, but this war was not over yet. Our essential question this episode is, what did Pompey need to win the Civil War and maintain power after it if he won? And what did Caesar need to win the Civil War and maintain power after it if he won? As a content warning, if there was one episode this series I would advise younger listeners to skip, It would be this chapter, or chapter 19. Sex is described in the most PG-13 way it will ever be in this series, as it's important to understand the relationship between two historical figures. Much more seriously than that, there is mention of sexual assault at the beginning of this episode, and many mentions of suicide at the end of the episode. One of these instances is also descriptive, and some may consider it graphic. This is to try to understand why this historical figure took his life this way, because it's important to history and how it affected other people, it is not mentioned to glorify his suicide. Included in the show notes is the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Hotline. If you would like a version of this episode without these elements, you can email the show at dotrrpod at and I can send you an edited mp3. Fresh off of defeat, Caesar and his army were in a dark mood when they arrived at the city of Gomphi. The city knew Caesar had lost, and refused to open their gates to the defeated Caesar. Caesar now unleashed his legions, allowing them to rape, loot, and murder civilians at their discretion. This was the first time he allowed them to do so in the Civil War. His men whetted their appetites for violence after their defeat, stole themselves some valuables, and sent a message to any other town of what would happen if they didn't open their gates to Caesar. Caesar took his army to areas where the Pompeians hadn't been, and hadn't been sapped of resources. Wherever they went, towns more freely offered their resources to Caesar, rather than suffer the consequences. After beating Caesar at Dyrrachium, the Optimates were drunk on victory and divided. Ephranius wanted to retake Rome and proclaim, We saved the city! Ahenobarbus wanted to pursue Caesar and crush him now. I'm about to end this man's whole career. Yet their commander Pompey was still wary of Caesar. Pompey didn't want to abandon his other forces and territory in the east just to take Rome. If he did, he'd likely lose his eastern territory to Caesar, like he lost Spain. Additionally, Pompey still wasn't completely confident his newer legions could defeat Caesar's veterans in open battle. The Altans were united in that they wanted to tear down Caesar for one reason or another, but the cracks in their unity began to show here. Some of them were gunning to become the prestigious Pontifex Maximus after Caesar was executed. Some were eager to start dividing Caesar's fortune and spending it in Rome. Some were eager to start their famous careers after Caesar was defeated. Some were eager to punish the Caesarians and neutral politicians from the conflict. And some were suspicious that Pompey wanted to prolong this war to maintain his supremacy over all of them. Cicero, among the Optimates, was disgusted to hear his colleagues. They outwardly claimed they wanted to preserve the Republic but privately dreamed about divvying up power and taking revenge after they defeated Caesar. That is disgusting. Cicero said there was nothing good about them apart from their cause, which was taking down Caesar. Cicero stayed with the Optimates, who he believed were the lesser of two evils. The virtuous Cato the Younger was not present in this atmosphere of greed, ambition, and mutual suspicion. You will never find. The more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Cato had a garrison to defend at Dyrrhachium, but some thought Pompey put Cato there so the virtuous man couldn't influence decisions immediately after Caesar was defeated. Pompey Magnus didn't command iron loyalty over the Optimates as Caesar did over his Caesarians. Pompey was more susceptible to be influenced by the Optimates. He had grown closer to these men, but still had to consider how he would be treated after they won. Would they quickly turn on him and try to cast him out of politics as they were now trying to cast out Caesar? Wanting to appease them, he more readily listened to the bloodthirsty men who were ready for open battle. After his father-in-law, Metellus Scipio, joined him with a few more legions, Poppy moved towards Caesar for an open battle. It was early August as the armies squared off against each other. For a few days they shuffled around, finding the most favorable ground. The fields of Pharsalus were wide plains. Pompey had more cavalry and was eager to use them to run over Caesar. It was the obvious and most effective strategy. Yet Caesar's men were in better spirits since their first defeat. Still, the odds were stacked against them. Pompey had greater cavalry and would attack them on a flat field. The sizes of the armies Caesar gives must be taken with a grain of salt. Caesar likely inflated and deflated numbers to make himself look better. By Caesar's estimates, Pompey had 45,000 men with over 6,000 cavalry. Caesar had less than half, at 22,000 men and only 1,000 cavalry. Even outnumbered two to one, Caesar had a plan. Twice the pride, double the full. Caesar's smaller army formed up in a similar fashion to the Pompeians. Flanks were the critical positions, and Caesar trusted Mark Antony to hold one flank on the side of a river, while Caesar himself commanded the other. Caesar was also commanding his cavalry, which would face off against Pompey's superior cavalry. Caesar correctly predicted Pompey would use his obvious advantage to try and flank him with his cavalry. Therefore, he stayed close to make sure his plan was executed perfectly. He couldn't afford a mistake. Caesar's front lines blocked the Pompeians' view, who couldn't see Caesar move 3,000 men behind the front line of his flank to supplement his smaller cavalry a surprise tool that can help us later. The battle commenced with Caesar's infantry advancing and meeting Pompey's front line. Pompey totally handed the first move to Caesar, yet only needed one to succeed, his sweeping cavalry. Pompey's cavalry launched their attack on Caesar's cavalry to neutralize them before they would run through the Caesarian infantry. Caesar's cavalry retreated, forcing the Pompeians to pursue. The farther they pursued Caesar's cavalry, the 6,000 Pompeian horses lost their formation in the whirlwind chase. Caesar's cavalry now led the disorganized Pompeian horde into Caesar's trap, where they were suddenly caught off guard by 3,000 infantry. They used their long javelins as spears to bring the cavalry down. Now the Pompeians lost order and momentum of attack. They were panicked and retreated from the battle, never able to organize and reform for a counterattack on Caesar. Having beaten back the cavalry, Caesar commanded his 3,000 men to swing around and attack the flank of Pompey's army, who now had to fight Caesar's front line and side and couldn't move to the opposite side because of the river. Pompeian recruits who were wholly unprepared for this outcome disintegrated just like his cavalry. Pompey's battle lines lost their organization, defense, and discipline. Pompey's offensive cavalry charge played right into Caesar's counterattack which was now crushing his army from two sides and using the river as an artificial flank. Pompey's army could only go backwards. I've made a huge mistake. Pompeians fled as they were being cut down. The battle was over and the Caesarians had a massive victory at Pharsalus. The optimates led by Pompey were stunned. Wait a minute, how did this happen? We're smarter than this. Apparently not. They underestimated the prowess of Gaius Julius Caesar. Haha, you fool! You fell victim to one of the classic blunders! Caesar bet on Caesar, and Caesar won. This is me. This is how I win. Caesar claimed he killed 15,000 and captured 24,000 Pompeians, which again should be taken with a grain of salt. Some optimates like Ahenobarbus were killed, but many more survived, including Marcus Junius Brutus, Servilius' son, who was captured. Still, more optimates evaded capture. Caesar claimed he only lost 230 men. Caesar's veterans maintained strict discipline in battle against recruits who turned tail and fled. Speaking of fleeing, Pompey Magnus was among those who fled the battle. He retreated to his army's camp when his cavalry charge failed, and hearing increasingly worse reports, he fled entirely. We're all gonna die! It was a poor showing for any Roman commander, especially Pompey the Great. But Pompey only lost the Battle of Pharsalus, not the war. Pompey didn't try to reform an army in Macedon or Greece, but instead went to the Kingdom of Egypt. Egypt was a rich kingdom independent of Rome, and many Roman senators had entertained the idea of conquering it and its insane wealth. Egypt had given Pompey resources for this war, and Pompey had in the past installed the former King Ptolemy XII as ruler of Egypt. While defeated in Egypt, Pompey could still rebuild an army. Across the east were still dozens of communities, nobles, and kings indebted and loyal to him. Ptolemy XII himself was dead, and his children, brother and sister Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra, were in their own civil war for control of Egypt. Pompey hoped whoever occupied the throne would offer him hospitality for putting their father on the throne. Egypt could be the base to help him rebuild his army. Pompey was victorious at Dyrrachium, Caesar victorious at Pharsalus, and a final battle in Egypt would finally settle, who was the greatest living Roman general. Pompey, his family, and a few officers sailed for Alexandria. The teenage king, Ptolemy XIII, welcomed Pompey and sent a welcome boat to retrieve him and bring him ashore. Things going well. Among the Egyptians were some Roman officers who had served with Pompey in the past and now supported Ptolemy's rule in Egypt the Romans stabbed Pompey to death. His family would have watched from their ship and may have seen them remove his head and take it, leaving Pompey Magnus's corpse to rot on the Alexandrian shore. Caesar had no idea this occurred until he arrived in Alexandria three days later. He was hot on Pompey's heels, eager to subdue the great general before he could regain strength in Egypt, and so he quickly traveled with a smaller army of 4,000 men. When he arrived at Alexandria, he learned that Pompey Magnus was dead, and to confirm it, the king's messengers presented his head and his personal signet ring. The teenage king Ptolemy XIII was under the control of a few advisors. They knew Pompey was defeated, and to appease Caesar, they should execute Pompey on his behalf and present it as a gift to the victorious master of Rome. Caesar wept at the sight and refused to look again. Some may call these crocodile tears a political show, but these tears may well have been genuine. Pompey was once Caesar's ally, son-in-law, and by a small stretch of the imagination, a friend. Caesar was very apparently merciful to his enemies and never proclaimed he had any desire to execute Pompey Magnus. Instead, a few foreigners assassinated the great Roman general who had done so much for the Republic. I can't believe you've done this. Caesar boldly marched his 4,000 men into Alexandria, straight to the royal palace of Ptolemy XIII, with all the trappings and boldness of a Roman consul. To contextualize Egypt's civil war, which Caesar was now inserting himself in, Egypt had been ruled for nearly 300 years by the Ptolemies. The first Ptolemy was a general of Alexander the Great. After Alexander's death, his generals and their descendants fought wars over generations, or divisions, of Alexander's empire. The first Ptolemy carved out Egypt for himself. Ptolemy married his son to his daughter, setting a precedence that the royal Ptolemies would primarily marry members of their own family. This meant that this Ptolemic dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs didn't actually have any Egyptian blood in them. They were ethnically Macedonian like Alexander the Great, who spoke Greek, incestuous like House Targaryen, who spoke Valerian, and pure, like Clan McPoyle. The McPoyle bloodline's been pure and clean for a thousand years. Now when you say pure and clean, uh, you mean what exactly? It means we haven't bred outside the bloodline. For a thousand years? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. By marrying each other, the Ptolemies didn't have to worry about noble Egyptians trying to marry into the family and take over. Instead, the Ptolemies had to worry about each other, as every Ptolemy had a claim to the throne and could claim it if they killed enough relatives. The Ptolemies had a long history of murdering each other for their family's throne. And you know what? I might lose some listeners for saying this, but I'm going to take a bold stance here. Incest is a bad thing. Back when Caesar and Pompey were allies in the Triumvirate, Ptolemy XII bribed the Triumvirate to recognize him as the official ruler of Egypt and make him a friend and ally of Rome, the triumvirate took the bribe and recognized Ptolemy the Twelfth as king. Rome would then back him as a legitimate ruler over anyone who may try to usurp him. Despite this, he was so unpopular with Egyptians, hiking up taxes to pay for the bribe, he was forced to flee Egypt. His daughter Bernice was made queen of Egypt. This did not sit well with Ptolemy the Twelfth, who took his daughter Cleopatra with him to Rome. Looking to appeal to another powerful Roman to reinstate him in power. He was eventually able to bribe a Roman governor to send troops to reclaim his rightful throne. Returning to power, Ptolemy XII killed his own daughter, Bernice, the pretender. Romans remained in Alexandria to help Ptolemy XII hold his crown, yet Ptolemy XII never fully paid off his massive debts to Rome, who helped secure him his throne. Oh my god. I am never going to financially recover from this. Ptolemy the 12th died an unpopular king to his people and willed the throne to his son Ptolemy the 13th and daughter Cleopatra. The siblings were 10 and 18 at the time. They might not have been married yet, but were certainly destined to be. Even if they were married, their marriage would not yet have been consummated. Cleopatra has been characterized in history as charming, assertive, cunning, and beautiful, and her encounters with Caesar She certainly lives up to this reputation. The young queen had her advisors, but wasn't controlled by them like her 10-year-old brother was. Cleopatra wanted to rule as the sole queen of Egypt without her brother, and tried to ignore his right to rule. However, Ptolemy XIII's advisors were not just going to be forced out of power. She alone didn't have the people's support to rule as sole queen as she took on the unpopularity of her father. She was eventually forced to acknowledge her brother's right to rule. Further disempowering her, when Pompey's eldest son, Gnaeus Pompey, came to raise men and resources from Egypt to fight Caesar, he only acknowledged Ptolemy XIII as Egypt's monarch and didn't mention Cleopatra. Cleopatra left Alexandria and Egypt looking to gather strength outside of Egypt. Her father had done the same and returned to his throne. She was able to form herself an army and return near Alexandria. Her brothers still held the royal army and the Roman soldiers loyal to the throne. That was when Pompey Magnus arrived and was promptly murdered. It's Ptolemy XIII's advisors thought Pompey would further strip Egypt of resources, which could start a rebellion against their rule. They also thought Pompey would still likely lose to Caesar, who would then punish them for supporting Pompey. Therefore, to please Caesar, who would recognize Ptolemy XIII as sole ruler, they took care of Caesar's Pompey problem. They had seriously miscalculated Caesar's response. I made a huge, tiny mistake. Despite the fact that Caesar's 4,000 men could never subdue a city of hundreds of thousands, Caesar boldly marched into Alexandria nonetheless. Caesar wanted Egypt's wealth and resources. His civil war had been very expensive and he needed to compensate hundreds of thousands of soldiers including the Pompeians who surrendered and swore allegiance to him. Furthermore, if he controlled Egypt, Caesar ensured that the scattered Optimates would not find refuge. His bold march inflamed the attitudes of Alexandrians were very unhappy with the small Roman occupation. Caesar told Ptolemy XIII he was demanding Egypt's debts to Rome be repaid to finance his civil war. Furthermore, he announced that since he helped install Ptolemy XII as the legitimate king, he would solve this dispute between his children. Ptolemy's advisors made no public protest and gave Caesar and his men refuge in the royal quarters. However, they secretly sent another advisor to besiege the royal district of Alexandria. Obstensibly, Ptolemy and his advisors claimed they didn't want this siege to occur, but truly wanted to force Caesar out. They were understandably too scared to try and assassinate Caesar and his 4,000 soldiers residing in the Alexandrian palace. Even if they killed Caesar and thousands of soldiers, the survivors could still wreak havoc within the palace. Caesar claimed 20,000 hostiles encircled the walled royal district and began to attack him. Again, while numbers are probably exaggerated, Caesar was definitely outnumbered in Alexandria and his 4,000 men had to repulse the attacks from the royal army. Their goal was to seemingly storm the royal quarters and force out or kill Caesar so they could maintain power and not pay him. Caesar sent messengers out, but Roman help would not soon arrive. Help did come in the form of a laundry bag, Cleopatra left her army and snuck inside the royal quarters, hidden in a laundry bag, or rug depending on who you ask. She was brought to Caesar and unfurled. They probably had been corresponding with each other before this point, but that night, the 52-year-old renegade general met the 21-year-old Queen of Egypt. Cleopatra understood that just like her father, she needed a Roman leader behind her to rule Egypt. The army she gathered to face her brothers was ultimately inferior, and she would have lost an open battle. So here she stood, in her brother's palace, vulnerable, yet daringly bold. Should her brother's advisors catch her, she would surely be executed. She was at Caesar's mercy. While Cleopatra probably realized she was a baddie, and definitely played up her charm for this encounter, she might not have realized Caesar loved cheating on his wife. Caesar was a serial adulterer who apparently enjoyed the thrill of sleeping with beautiful and powerful women as much as he enjoyed sleeping with beautiful and powerful women. He had slept with many senators' wives, and apparently even Crassus and Pompey's wives. Caesar was definitely attracted to this bold and beautiful queen before him. For Cleopatra, besides her need to have Caesar's support, there was a decent shot she was attracted to this powerful, victorious Roman commander who exuded big dictator energy. Despite their age difference, Caesar was still said to have been relatively handsome and obsessed with maintaining his appearance. The pair were also politicians, and they had something to gain from a friendly relationship. Caesar wanted to use Cleopatra to finance his civil war. Cleopatra wanted to use Caesar to put her on the throne. The renegade queen and renegade general conducted their business with pleasure. In bed. Ptolemy Thirteenth and his advisors only discovered the intruder the next morning. When the teenage boy found out, he stormed out of the castle in a rage. Caesar beckoned to him inside and explained his father's will would be enforced to the letter. Ptolemy would rule with his sister Cleopatra. Furthermore, Caesar gave up Rome's control of the island of Cyprus and gave it back to the Ptolemies to be ruled by their brother and sister, Ptolemy XIV and Arsinoe. There was chaos in Alexandria. As the Alexandrians weren't happy Cleopatra was going to be reinstated as queen. The siege of the palace and battles in Alexandria continued. Caesar would command by day and by night would party, drink heavily, and sleep with Cleopatra. Things only got more insane as Arsinoe would go renegade. That's right, non-Romans can do it too. Arsinoe escaped from the royal quarters, killed Ptolemy XIII's advisor who was besieging the palace, and took control of that army to continue the siege. Caesar's men were able to hold the palace, and were eventually aided by additional Roman troops and resources. Leading Alexandrians asked Caesar to release Ptolemy XIII to them, as they chafed under the rule of the tyrant Arsinoe. More realistically, it was probably because their new queen Arsinoe didn't like them, and replacing her with Ptolemy could probably gain them the young king's favor. Ptolemy claimed he didn't want to leave the palace, Caesar told the teenager that if he truly felt that way, he should prove his loyalty to Rome by leaving and telling his forces to stand down and stop fighting. Then they could make peace together. Ptolemy left to join Arsinoe, making her a subordinate to him and then renewing the army's attack on Caesar. While Ptolemy may have thought he was tricking Caesar, it's worth considering if Caesar was tricking the boy who is now explicitly his enemy. <laughs> Success! Caesar was able to hold off the royal army until serious help arrived for him, and the United Roman forces were able to push out the royal army from Alexandria. Caesar pursued the royal army and defeated them with his now sizable force. Arsinoe was taken prisoner, and Ptolemy XIII would drown in the Nile River as he tried to escape. Drown in it! Caesar and Cleopatra had won. Cleopatra became engaged to her teenage brother Ptolemy XIV. They would rule Egypt together, but this time, Ptolemy XIV would have no coercive advisors looking to kick Cleopatra out. She was the real power of Egypt, confirmed by Julius Caesar. Caesar tarried in Egypt longer than was necessary. He spent a few months lazing on a pleasure cruise down the Nile River with Cleopatra. For Cleopatra, she was introducing herself to her subjects. For Caesar who had been fighting for nearly a decade straight since first going to Gaul, he was on vacation with the beautiful Cleopatra. Ah, look at me! I'm having the time of my life! The two were certainly passionate for each other and may have even been in love. However, the time came for Caesar to leave his lover and the exotic Egypt. Egypt and Cleopatra were secure and in support of Caesar, and when Caesar caught word of crisis in Asia, he left to write The Roman World, leaving Cleopatra pregnant with his child. With the optimates scattered and Caesar in Egypt, there was a void of Roman presence and policing in the east. The bold Asian king Pharnaces II used the opportunity to rebel against Roman rule. Pharnaces was the son of Mithridates VI who had surrendered to Pompey and his eastern conquests. Pharnaces now looked to take revenge. Pharnaces castrated Romans in his territory and expanded outward. When Caesar was barreling his way Pharnaces asked Caesar to keep his land and spoils since he didn't help Pompey in the Civil War. Caesar demanded it all back and couldn't let the mutilation of Romans be forgiven. He would show no mercy to Pharnaces. I've made a huge mistake. Caesar broke the king's army and Pharnaces was killed by a rival when he escaped back to his capital. After conquering King Pharnaces, Caesar uttered his famous phrase. Vini Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Caesar then returned to Italy in September 47 BCE. It had been over a year since he defeated Pompey. Back in 48 BCE, he had been made dictator by a friendly senate for a second time, given a one-year term, double the normal six months. Since Caesar would have supreme control of Roman politics, the only elections that were held would be for the tribunes. But since Caesar was away in Alexandria and the East for most of the year, it was his appointed second-in-command, Mark Antony, who would oversee Rome in Caesar's absence. I'm Mr. Manager! Again, Antony's behavior was very publicly indulgent. Traditionally, it was very inappropriate for a Roman politician vested with so much power to flaunt it. But times were changing in the Republic. Mark Antony wore a sword on his hip like a soldier when he was supposed to be a civilian and continued to drink and feast often. At least once he had to pause a senate meeting to vomit in front of everyone and may have been consistently hungover. Antony was escorted around by soldiers, which should have been totally needless in a functioning republic, but Antony liked to have them around to flex. Again, Antony's behavior did not endear the people to Caesar's regime. Antony failed to address concerns in what was supposed to be a functioning republic, like Caesar's unpaid legions growing restless in Italy. Antony did give the Republic some feasts in Caesar's honor, but this was not enough to wholly bring Rome to Caesar's cause, and discontent was rife. Cicero was in Italy at this time, and did not escape abroad like other optimates. Cicero was exiled from Rome until he might be pardoned by Caesar. Before arriving in Rome itself, Caesar met Cicero outside of it, and gave the great orator his pardon. Caesar used his dictatorial powers to appoint his loyal subordinates to the consulships and praetorships for the rest of the year, as well as filling vacant priesthood positions. For the next year, it was decided that Caesar would serve as consul, and as voted by the Senate, would serve as consul for five years straight. His first fellow consul was Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, a loyal Caesarian who had given Caesar his first dictatorship. While Antony had been unable to quell the legion that threatened mutiny, Caesar was able to. Caesar addressed his soldiers as civilians rather than his comrades, and said he would release them from service if that's what they wanted. The legion was stunned that Caesar would dismiss them so flippantly and begged to serve him further. Caesar didn't have to make any executions as the legion fell into line and promised to serve him in the province of Africa. Caesar was only in Rome long enough to stabilize his most pressing issues, then sailed south to finish his civil war. His affairs in Alexandria had allowed the Optimates and Pompeian soldiers to rally their strength in the province of Africa. They included Cato the Younger, Metellus Scipio, Afranius, Petraeus, and Pompey's sons, Gnaeus and Sextus. There was also King Juba and his famous Numidian cavalry allied to them. The Optimates looked to make another stand against Caesar. Given enough time, they could build a force that could storm Sicily or Sardinia, and eventually Italy itself. The civil war was not over yet, and blood was still to be shed. Caesar brought six legions to the African province. Most of them were actually former Pompeians than his own day one veterans. While his enemy had the stronger navy and more immediate forces, Caesar again had the element, element. of surprise! as he sailed in winter. As Caesar's forces roamed for supplies from communities, they got into a bloody engagement with Pompeian cavalry. Both sides took casualties, and Caesar was repelled from some communities he sought resources from, but was by no means beaten. Caesar continued to draw strength from defecting Pompeians. Caesar also ran propaganda that the Optimates were under the control of the foreign King Juba. Furthermore, there were still some Roman settlements created by Caesar's uncle Marius, who took up arms for Marius' nephew. And that's a callback. Additionally, two more veteran legions landed for Caesar. Caesar's final army was taking shape, and the Pompeian army was moving to engage them. There would be skirmishes before their great battle, and neither side made attempts to negotiate. While the Ottomans had had a while to prepare their resources for war, Caesar was not in that position. The size of his force was too big to feed, and he had to withdraw from the camp he made. King Juba's cavalry harassed their retreat, forcing the army to periodically stop and make a concerted defense to briefly drive them off. Caesar was able to raid some communities for food for his soldiers, and the ultimate battleground was near the town of Thapsus. Caesar's legions were all eager for battle, and he let them loose on the Optimates. The Optimates were surprised at the sudden advance of the Caesareans and didn't recover. Even the war elephants King Juba had were scared off by a hail of javelins. The Optimates were routed. While Caesar had traditionally taken pains during the civil war to pardon his defeated enemies, His soldiers were in a dark mood, and killed more freely, rather than letting Optimates go to fight another day. Many Optimates were killed trying to surrender, and even some of Caesar's officers were killed as they tried to restrain their soldiers. By Caesar's highly inflated accounts, he killed 10,000 Optimate soldiers, while only taking 50 casualties. Some of the Optimates' senior command escaped, but most met a grisly end. Afranius was captured and handed over to Caesar, who then ordered his execution at the behest of his soldiers. Petraeus and King Juba fought each other to the death in a suicide pact. Metellus Scipio escaped to sea and committed suicide before a Caesarian squadron could capture him. Gnaeus and Sextus Pompey were not killed and were able to escape to Spain. The virtuous Cato the Younger had not been present at the Battle of Thapsus. He discussed with the Romans in his presence what was to be done, and decided it was worthless to continue fighting Caesar. They could flee, surrender, or commit suicide. Cato's son was concerned about his father and removed his sword from his room that evening. But Cato complained, and his son returned the sword. Cato used the sword to stab himself in the stomach. A doctor was summoned when it was discovered what Cato had done to clean the wound and bound it. Cato ripped off his stitches and tore out his entrails before anyone could stop him. This next statement isn't to glorify suicide, but to try and understand Cato's reasoning for taking his own life. Cato's very painful end was meant to show Romans how much he would rather die than live under Caesar's republic, or whatever Caesar would make of the republic. Caesar said he regretted not being able to pardon Cato. Caesar's civil war took him from west to east as he fought in Europe, Asia, and Africa. Subduing the Roman world would not be so easy as peacefully steamrolling Italy, but Caesar's vicious brilliance and veteran legions won him the most important battles that destroyed Pompey Magnus and his forces. Along the way, he was able to arbitrate the Egyptian Civil War and put his lover on the throne. Yet the violence was not over, as there was still conflict to come from Spain. Almost three and a half years ago, Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Now most of the men who tried to tear him down were dead or submitted to him. Despite Pompey's son surviving in Spain, which Caesar would eventually have to contend with, for all intents and purposes, he won his civil war. What would Caesar do now? Our essential question to keep in mind throughout this episode was, what did Pompey need to win the civil war and maintain power after it if he won? And what did Caesar need to win the civil war and maintain power after it if he won? Go ahead and pause if you would like to reflect on your answer. Sorry if you were gunning for Pompey this episode. Pompey and Caesar had similarities and differences in their needs. Pompey was in an alliance with the Optimates. As said many times before, Pompey was a great general, but a weak politician. There was a chance that the Optimates would turn on him once they dealt with Caesar, so Pompey needed to be in their good graces. This is partly why he pursued an open battle at Pharsalus, where he was ultimately defeated. If Pompey didn't have to worry about his political position, and didn't have to appease his allies, his military strategy and the fate of the Republic might have turned out differently. Caesar's needs were different. For the most part, Caesar's allies were completely loyal to him at this point, so he didn't have to appease any fellow politicians. What he did need was to appease the Roman people and demonize Pompey and the Optimates. Caesar had to show the people that he was the just and legitimate savior of the Republic, was being wronged by his unjust enemies and had to defeat them before they could ruin the Republic. Caesar's most basic argument for this was that his tribunes, Mark Antony and Quintus Cassius, were sacrosanct but had to flee Rome because they feared the Ottomans would kill them. To back up this argument, Caesar tried to minimize his army's violence on civilians, especially in Rome and Italy, though let them loose a few times. Caesar also had to appease his army, parts of which were on the verge of mutiny a few times. To do this, Caesar would need additional resources to pay them. That's partly why Cleopatra was so attractive. With her ally to him on the Egyptian throne, she could repay her father's large debt to Rome, which Caesar could use to pay his soldiers and keep them loyal. Next week, since Caesar effectively won his war, we see how he restores the Roman Republic. You can follow Death of the Roman Republic on Twitter at dotrr That is D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter, so you can keep up with the show get some educational summaries of the episodes, and of course, keep up with the hottest Roman history memes for this civil war. Oh my gosh, there's... I got a big folder for that, guys. So, yes, go ahead and follow if you so choose to at dotrr on Twitter. Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube. Visit to re-listen to episode highlights from the show. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast re-listen to favorite clips, and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you! Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show.